Lord of the Rings, not again. The skies are strange. The other thing, the other things are, because I have much to say about uh, all the stuff that's being done with the stranger. I was kind of disappointed to, to see women dwarves and then not have beards. Dwarves are so sensitive. <laughs> Do not mistake me for conjurer of cheap tricks. The scene where she's putting the helmet on the stack of helmets of all the dead elves. Uh, I saw a meme that said, uh, did you know that Galadriel broke her toe when she kicked one of the helmets? <laughs> Welcome to the first podcast of Across the Sundering Seas. I'm Nathan Dewberry. I'm Zach Hutspeth. On this podcast, we will break down Amazon's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power episodes, giving our reactions, interpretations, speculations, and general Tolkien whatnots. We'll also interview Tolkien scholars and fans to get their thoughts and opinions on the show and all things Tolkien. So whether you're sitting down for breakfast, second breakfast, elevensies, luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner or supper please enjoy across the sundering seas We are genuinely excited and honored to be joined for this episode by two Tolkien scholars, Dr. Gabriel Shank and Dr. Sarah Brown. Both are professors at Signum University and they live in the UK. Um, and we'll, we'll just let them introduce themselves. Hi, yes, thank you very much for having me. My name is Gabriel Shank. Uh, what do I do? I teach for Signum University on the master's program in literature and language. Uh, I mainly teach so fantasy literature and literature about King Arthur, which is my speciality. Uh, I did my PhD in Arthurian literature at Oxford, um, graduating quite a few years ago now, but I still live in the city uh, and I've lived here all my life. So I've um, been surrounded by the places that inspired C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, where they uh, worked. I also work for the Owen Barfield Literary Estate for the past 11 years, and Owen Barfield was a philosopher and writer and one of the core members of the writing group known as the Inklings, so huge influence on C.S. Lewis in particular, but also J.R.R. Tolkien. They were all friends together and uh, all kind of thought and worked together, um, philosophized together and so on. So it's been really interesting working with uh, the Owen Barfield Literary Estate and uh, specifically on the website owenbarfield.org. Um, so if you're interested in Owen Barfield, do check that out. And um, Barfield is a great way of understanding Tolkien as well, and particularly Lewis uh, as a kind of, you know, once you read Barfield, then you notice all these extra things in Tolkien and Lewis. So I, I do recommend that. What got you into Arthur? What what got you into to that field? Well, I mean, it's Tolkien, really. It's fantasy. It's C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. It's I grew up with Narnia and Lord of the Rings, um, particularly Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit on audio cassette, uh, as it was back in those days. Uh, so the BBC radio adaptations of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It did some amazing um, audio dramas. Uh, which I highly recommend. They're my favorite adaptations. And I think they probably can't be beaten. I think audio drama actually works really, really well for talking. Uh, and then I also loved the BBC television versions of the Narnia stories, but I loved the books too. And then I read Lord of the Rings when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, and I loved that as well. Uh, and so when I came to university, I discovered that I could be writing about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, which is really exciting for me. And I actually found that Lewis was um, a brilliant scholar and I could use his academic work. I never really managed to use Tolkien so much because I wasn't sort of in his area, Germanic philology or uh, Old English or anything like that. Um, but I managed to use C.S. Lewis in my essays at university because I studied English literature. And then I ended up doing 
my uh, undergraduate dissertation on Lewis and then did my master's dissertation on William Morris, who was a big influence on Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, and then for my PhD, I thought, well, how do I keep on living in Middle Earth and Narnia and sort of keep on thinking about these exciting things? And I thought King Arthur, that's a, a way of doing that. Um, so just to explain, King Arthur probably never existed. He may have been a real king uh, in Britain in the days of yore. More, people are always very disappointed when I say King Arthur probably never existed because we want him to exist. But really, when we think about King Arthur, we think about the stories that were written about him in the Middle Ages, but also continue to be written about him in uh, the 19th century onwards in particular. And so that's what I focused on. Uh, and th th it's not quite fantasy. It's sort of an adjacent thing. It's sort of halfway between fantasy and history. Um, but uh, it was a way of kind of continuing to um, to escape into other worlds and think about why we want to escape into other worlds as well and w why we use uh, King Arthur, why we keep on going back to those Arthurian stories. You know, very similar questions that we could ask about uh, fantasy writers as well. The, the movies came out when I was in high school. Uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, the trilogy. And like, I always, after that, you know, it was the age of men that came right at the end of return. And I always imagined that it just kind of flowed right into like King Arthur and all of those. And like, I used to wish there was like fan fiction that like tied middle earth and, and King Arthur together. Well, there is Tolkien oh. wrote it. It's okay. called the fall of Arthur. Uh, he didn't finish it. It was, it was a real labor of love for him. He w worked on it over several decades uh, if you have the Christopher Tolkien edition of The Fall of Arthur, which is the only edition you can have, actually, unless you have access to Tolkien's notebooks or something, then Christopher Tolkien fills out where Tolkien, his father, was going with the story because he got about, oh, I don't know, maybe halfway done, two-thirds of the way done. It's a bit difficult to tell. Um, and there are some links between Middle-earth and king arthur in in the kind of the sketches for what was to come um it's something to do with arendel uh, and i i don't know i don't quite um can't quite remember but uh if you look at the, the notes by christopher Tolkien, you can actually see some links there i'm dr sarah brown and i'm the chair of faculty for language and literature for signum university um, and our president is Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, uh, of whom uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard. So uh, what I do is I take care of the teaching that we do within Signum, um, and I do a lot of teaching myself, and my specialist area is J.R.R. Tolkien. What chance happening or encounter set you on this Tolkien journey? That's actually quite a story. Um, when I was about eight years old, uh, my dad handed me his copy of the Lord of the Rings off his bookshelf. Um, and I was, this is going to come as a, a shock to absolutely nobody who knows me. I was a rather precocious child when it comes to reading. Uh, and I would read just about everything and I would devour them. And then I'd be looking for something else to read. And I think in an effort to shut me up for a little while, my dad handed me his copy of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, eight years old, that's when I dived into Tolkien's world for the first time. So oddly enough, I read The Lord of the Rings before I read The Hobbit, which is a slightly odd way around, I suppose. But my dad didn't have a copy of The Hobbit. So um, I read The Lord of the Rings and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I got a lot out of the story for an eight-year-old. Um, and then I said, well, what else has this person written? Uh, and um, my dad says, well, I don't have any other copies of that. So let's go to the library because that's uh, that's something that was still a thing here in the UK before they started shutting all the public libraries down. That's a oh. whole other story. Um, so then, of course, they gave me The Hobbit because I'm eight years old. So they just said, here, have The Hobbit. I read The Hobbit and got utterly confused because I'd already read The Lord of the Rings. I thought The Hobbit would be about Frodo. And then suddenly there's this Bilbo character back and I was completely confused by that, but I enjoyed it well enough and that was fine. I finished that really quite quickly. I think within a couple of days, went back and said, I want more. And they handed me the Silmarillion <laughs> at eight years old. Yeah, I was a precocious reader, but I wasn't that good. Um, so I, I read 
most of it, took in a small amount of it, decided maybe I'd come back to that later. So uh, I, in fact, I think it was about 12 when I came back to the Silmarillion um, and reread it and really kind of started to immerse myself in fantasy writing at that time. I was also a total nerd about mythology. So this kind of connected me to Tolkien as well, because just as he did, I loved my mythology. So I was devouring all of that, uh, not just the Greek and Roman, but I loved the Nordic mythology as well. Um, and so I could see kind of bits of how this was playing out. So that is my kind of origin story with Tolkien, if you like. It's all thank you to my dad. Um, and when he passed, I took that copy of The Lord of the Rings and it sits upon my shelf where it is uh, very much loved, although rarely read these days because it's a little fragile. Years ago, when Peter Jackson's uh, trilogy came out, what were your thoughts then of, of his adaptation? I was so excited. Um, in actual fact, it's actually thanks to Peter Jackson's films that I did my Ph.D., um, I mean, obviously, I was a relatively old student for starting my uh, my PhD, um, but it inspired me to do that because, you know, I I got married, I had a child, I had a job. You know what happens? Things sort of go by the wayside a little bit. Um, but watching those films, I that's it. I had to read them again, and I got immersed in it again. And my husband has a PhD, so he just said to me, "Well, you know, why don't you do some study in it?" And I thought, "There's an idea." And so, I mean, it sounds more simple than it actually right. is, of course. But uh, yeah, so it's actually it's all thanks to the Jackson films. I was so excited by them. There are there are things that I could pick nits about with them. But, you know, overall, I thought the films of The Lord of the Rings were just a wonderfully immersive experience. Well, I loved it. I mean, I was, I think, about 14 when the first one came out. Uh, and I remember seeing it in Oxford and it just seemed like the best movie ever made. And I still kind of feel like that. I do think Peter Jackson's trilogy is brilliant. Um, I didn't, you know, I think, I think sort of 20 years later, I think we can view it a bit more objectively and, and say, well, he, you know, he made quite a lot of changes and some of those changes are a bit odd. And, uh, you know, the changes always need to be made when you translate something into a different medium. I think it worked pretty well for Lord of the Rings. I think it worked less well for The Hobbit. Um, but I think those films really hold up. I think they're very beautiful. Uh and I think they're good representations of Tolkien, but no representation is ever going to be perfect. No adaptation is ever going to capture everything you get in a text. So luckily, we still have the texts. And that's true for Peter Jackson is true for any ad adaptation. So I was on Twitter and saw an ad for uh, going to the movies and watching the first two episodes uh, a, a day, two days before it was released on Amazon. And so I got on, I signed up, uh, Amazon gave, was giving me free tickets and, uh, went to the theaters to see this. And I loved being in the theaters to watch Lord of the Rings. Cause it has been years and years since I've been able to do that. It was, yeah, just the opportunity to get to watch it on the big screen in the, um, the, just the grand visuals. Cause it is so it's, it's made as if it was a movie and and so being able to see it as if it was a movie was it was it was awesome i was front row and it was still worth it so we actually didn't go together i, I went with someone else you were there with other people as well and then afterwards we just got to talking and i mentioned it'd be fun to do a podcast and yeah. we were like i'm in Let's do and it. so we threw this together basically <laughs> and have decided to go on this journey yeah i dare say uh part of the reason is just because we want we wanted to dive in like we're getting middle earth back on screen and um and so it's a chance for us to to re reignite uh passions and and get to learn from on this episode two amazing scholars uh and on future episodes fans whoever whoever we get on 
uh, just to get to learn from them and get to talk about what, what we get excited about. I watched Rings of Power on the weekend for the second time with my parents and I had to convince my father to watch it with me because he said, oh, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, not again. You know, they've, they've done this so many times. And I said, no, just watch it. And he watched it and got really interested in it and uh, afterwards said, you know, I thought it would just be the same thing again, but actually, you know, they're really telling different stories and it's very interesting. So, you know, for, at this stage, if we hadn't had the new line, Lord of the Rings and so on, then this would seem pretty silly. But because we have had that and we've had The Hobbit and we've had various other uh, interpretations and video games and so on, I think it's a great opportunity to go on in and flesh out more of that world. Um, you know, it would have been nice if they'd had rights to the Silmarillion, but maybe that will happen. Uh, it, it's amazing that they've been able to show what they have shown. You know, five, ten years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. And I think the Tolkien estate has relaxed their grip a little bit, but they're kind of doing so quite cautiously. I mean, Tolkien in his lifetime gave away the rights to uh to the films quite willy-nilly uh not the rights to everything but the rights to lord of the rings and that was probably a mistake uh to just give it all up all in one go without any kind of creative control although i don't think he was interested in creative control um necessarily but now i think they're kind of letting things go slowly seeing how things develop um so it's not an ideal situation for anyone not to have rights to to all those stories but i think they're doing some interesting things with the uh material that they do have and ultimately this will bring people to read the texts if they haven't done so already and that's also a good thing yep that's how i feel too it's it's the difference i mean the book is always better than the movie right but but being there and feeling it and seeing it. And the thing I can compare it to, I have a, a daughter. She read uh, the Harry Potter series when she was seven years old, the whole thing. And she had never seen the movies, right? And so we watched the first movie. And and she, I say, what's better, the book or the movie? And I'm, I'm expecting the book. And she goes, the movie. And it's because she didn't know what the castle looked like. She didn't have the world experience that we have, right? And so she was... She couldn't imagine the, the grandness of everything. And so rereading it all again, she had a better, uh, you know, appreciation for it. And so for me, kind of being in that world um, is a place I want to be. And I can get that on the pages, but I'm a visual person as well. And so uh, I, I love uh, just being in Middle Earth. The first thing I heard was that it was going to be um, a second age series. Um, and my first thought was, huh, how are they going to do that? Um, because I was pretty sure at the time, Christopher Tolkien was still alive, of mm -hmm. course, when they first announced that this was going to be a thing. I thought there's no way he's giving them the rights to the Silmarillion. Um, and obviously I was right, as were a number of people who said exactly the same thing. Um, so I thought, well, what, what are they going to do with that? Because it's not impossible. If you look at the Lord of the Rings, which they have the full rights to, there's a bunch of stuff in the appendices. The Tale of Years gives you a fair bit of detail, although there's you know hundreds of years of gap every now and then. But still, there's a fair bit of detail. And of course, if you're canny and you mine the texts, you'll find much more information. You go to, for example, the Council of Elrond. There you get a fair bit of story and background for the Second Age. And there are the little moments here and there, Aragorn singing from the Lay of Lathian, for example, just moments where I think, okay, well, that's where we're coming from. But at the time when I first heard, which was a few years ago now, I thought that's not going to be easy. Um, and yeah, I was, I was right. It isn't going to be easy for them, but um, I suppose I ignored it to start off with because I thought, well, this is going to take a while anyway. And then, of course, COVID happened, so it took even longer. Um, my excitement for it didn't start at all until I saw the first trailer. And then I thought, okay, it's now real. It's now solid. Something is happening. I feel like I might be a hobbit myself. Um, and so I, I really kind of latched on to the Harfoots. One of the things that people are saying is that hobbits have no business in the Second Age. 
that there were no hobbits in the second age. I, I have a problem with that kind of absolutism when it comes to uh, the Harfoots. Uh, and I actually think that the um, the show was very, very clever in how it dealt with that straight away, because when the two hunters come on scene, one of the things that they are talking about is the Harfoots. Don't let the Harfoots get you. And the other one says, or oh, I thought they were just some kind of children's story, right? Right. See, I think there is the heart of it. And we also see that the, the Harfoots are incredibly clever at hiding themselves. And they're very isolationist, even more isolationist than the Hobbits of the Third Age in the Shire. So here's the thing. Just because nobody has written about them in the Second Age doesn't mean to say they weren't there. Mm. Um, if the elves are recording the histories, why are they going to talk about the Harfoots, who are hiding away from the elves anyway, and who in the Second Age um, are thought of as some kind of tale of creatures that don't really exist? Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, I, I actually my my head canon is, but also because I'm a scholar and I've I've gone through the the texts and this is what I think is I think that the Harfoots were around, but that they just weren't and they weren't part of the events that were being recorded. And so that is why I, I do not think that the hobbits suddenly out of nowhere. Um, it just in time for the third age and to head west and populate the Shire. That's that sounds kind of ridiculous to me um, that they must have come into being at some point. To me, it makes sense that they came into being. Uh, I mean, you've got obviously you've got the elves are first, the children of Iluvatar. Then you've got um, the men awaken. Then Iluvatar says to Aule, OK, it's time for the dwarves. They can come into being that's fine why why not the harfoots at around the same time um it doesn't make sense to me that suddenly Lubitar will go you know what we're missing we're missing some harfoots i know it's the second age or the third age maybe i'll just drop those somewhere in middle earth and we'll see what happens. does that make sense no exactly <laughs> exactly that's that's why the harfoots are there in the second age because they're there in the second age it shows how they they can end up being uh a myth yeah because like because they're so good at hiding and so good at disguising their their homes i loved uh too that they did a shot specifically on their feet so if you didn't know they were hobbits you saw the hairy <laughs> there feet is you know for it's a sure hobbit. connection i do um think there's something to be said about hobbits and harfoots as narrative devices uh one of the reasons I think Lord of the Rings works so well is although it is high fantasy and it's epic and it's broad vistas and it's big battles and some of it's extremely high concept, it's very grounded through the hobbits. And we can relate to those hobbits as well, uh, most people. Um, and the hobbits are very useful in that they don't really know much about the world outside their borders. So... You know, when the company go to Weathertop, for example, it's not ridiculous for one of the hobbits to say, where are we? What are we doing here? What's this all about? And Aragorn can then explain not just what is Weathertop now, but what was Weathertop in the past. And he can talk about the Numenorians and so on. But it's sort of delivered in a way that feels natural and interesting uh, for the reader. The, the readers are kind of along the ride with the hobbits. And I also, this may be specific to the UK or maybe more universal. I suspect it's universal. But there's something very relatable about hobbits um, in terms of most people's everyday experiences of life, particularly country life. Um, I remember talking to um, uh, a plumber a few years ago who was doing some work in my house and I, my friend and I invited him to breakfast and we were just chatting with him and uh, this was in Oxfordshire and we said, oh, you know, have you lived in Oxfordshire all, for long? And he said, oh, I've lived here all my life. I have 
apart from a year I spend in Buckinghamshire, and he sort of his whole face darkened, and you could just see him thinking, "There's queer folk that side of the river," and it, it was just it, like a hobbit. I mean, I, it probably sounds quite patronising, but what I mean is like there's people like that. There's kind of you know salt of the earth people who um, I, I, I see in. In, reflected in the hobbits if we travel all the way down south to what is being often known among the fans as before door mm. uh, down there we have um arondir this uh, this new elf the first watch through on this I, I i didn't have any context really that this this is the land that becomes mordor and these these people are i mean they they definitely talk about it but I didn't realize how seriously these people are the ones that like ser serve Morgoth and eventually serve Sauron. Arondir gets into an argument with with a with a uh, a boy basically, and it's just driving home the point that they do not get along, elves and humans. He's been there for seventy nine years, and his commander talks about how um, they're watching over the humans in that area. And there's no sense of the fact, as is actually pointed out by one of the uh, the young lads in the pub, it's generations ago for these men. I mean, so many generations ago that the people who actually were on Sauron's side are on uh, Morgoth's side, rather, are out of their remembrance. We're not talking about Grandad. We're talking about before that. It's a long time ago. But for the camp commander, not camp commander, for the, you know, I'm calling it a camp commander. And I'll tell you why. Because it feels like an occupation. Sure. You know, these elves are occupying this land and they are keeping an eye on the humans there. So we cut back to the Harfoots and uh, Sadak Burroughs is reading his book again. And then he, he looks at Nori and says that the skies are strange. They're sure going to get strange. A meteor comes across the sky and Nori runs to it and finds the stranger. What what, what did you think when that was happening and uh, how did you perceive that? Okay, so there are a number of interesting things about this. I mean, we're going to be talking about the stranger for a while because we're not going to get told who the stranger is for ages. Oh, I hope not. I'd like to find out next week if possible. The meteor seems to arrive in Middle-earth at around the same time that the clouds roll back to allow Galadriel and the boat into Valinor. Okay. It seems to be a concurrent event, okay? Um, that's certainly how it it appears on screen. So that's one thing to bear in mind. Yeah, I mean, it looks like, you know, he's not going to be speaking English anytime soon. He's not going to remember who he is. Something to do with stars, so it's quite a big... Um, task that he's got lined up for the Harfoots. Um yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. It's going to take a while before we know who he is, but I would imagine that we do find out by the end of the series. I think it would be too frustrating to leave that to season two. The very first line that we hear in the first episode is nothing is evil in its beginning. What might that mean? Um, there's also this connection that um, he immediately has with Nori. So I think that's important because why would you send something evil and have it interact with the Harfoots? Nobody knows who the stranger is. And it doesn't matter how many times you've read the Silmarillion, um, nobody knows. It's implied, I think, that it is a wizard. He's clearly magical. So, you know, when he gets angry, the, the trees bend. Uh, the series is also following a lot of the style and visual language of the New Line films. So if you think about when Gandalf uses his magic in Fellowship of the Ring and he gets angry with Bilbo and says, do not mistake me for conjurer of cheap tricks. And he sort of bends over and then the whole room sort of bends and twists and you can hear the wood creaking. It's very similar to how the trees bend over and creak uh, when the stranger gets angry as well. Um, the way that he talks to the fireflies is very similar to how Gandalf talks to, I think it's a moth or something, in Fellowship of the Ring as well. You know, it's kind of whispering like this and then letting it fly off. Uh, also, long beards, you know, 
pretty raggedy, pretty shabby. That's kind of visual language for wizard following the new line formula. There is a heck of a lot of misdirecting going on around the stranger. Okay. Um, so first of all, the music. The theme of Sauron plays behind the stranger on at least two occasions. That's worth noting what's going on there. Uh, secondly, um, the language that he uses, and we only get a couple of words, are to do with fire and, and why. Okay, He's, so is he asking why is there fire or where is the fire or something to do with fire? So there's that. Um, then we have him scratching a rune into the ground. And that is actually, I mean, one of the ways to interpret that is that it is a backwards G rune, a Gandalf rune, but it is backwards. If you twist it slightly, on the other hand, it looks like the map of Mordor. So there's another thing there to bear in mind, okay? Um, and then apart from that, we then have him speaking to the fireflies. Now, if we're looking at all the callbacks to Jackson's films, we see Gandalf, for example, speaking to the moths and getting the moths to do something for him. The stranger speaks to the fireflies and gets them to create this, um, th this map of the stars for him. But the fireflies die. Right. right? That does not seem very Gandalfian. You know, he interacts with the fireflies. They do as they're told and then they die. The other thing, it, well, the other thing, the other things are, because I have much to say about uh, all the stuff that's being done with The Stranger. Um, one of the things to notice is that when Galadriel was up north uh, in Sauron's chill-out palace with the, the rest of her band of merry elves, one of the things that was pointed out was that the fires that they carried had no warmth because of the amount of evil. This now feels to me like foreshadowing because when Nori took a header down into the fiery pit, it wasn't hot. Now, where have we heard this before in the legendarium where the fire or something within the fire isn't hot? It's the ring, okay? So should we then be thinking, is this something evil? Is this Sauron come to earth? What's going on here? Uh, Except, of course, we can go back to some of the lines of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, where Mary says that he, he would think that evil would seem fairer and feel fouler. I mean, he, he looks pretty awful. He's not looking very fair at all. The other kind of um, kind of tie in or, you know, the something pointing to Sauron, maybe, um, was um, the leaf fell in the elf kingdom and he turned it over and it had black growing on it. Um, and so it's kind of this like consequence for using magic, you know, um, which, but I, I do feel like they're purposely misdirecting us, you know? And there's, there's audio cues too. You're talking about the visual cues, um, kind of the first time that we experience him at the end of the first episode, there's, there's those whisperings behind, which was, that was a key with like the ring. You were talking about the, the not being hot. There's those, there's audio cues kind of hinting at it to make like maybe to mislead us maybe to lead us we'll, we'll i guess we'll find out with the tv show format they need something to keep us going right <laughs> something to unveil later um which i do think is different about this because with everything else you know we could flip to the end of the book and figure out what's going to happen and with this we don't I mean, we don't really know i agree with you about the tv format and i I think one mistake is that we, if we're talking fans, then we assume the show is made for us because it's talking. But actually, we're going to watch it no matter what. Or most of us are, not not all talking fans will. But most people who already are invested will watch it. And so really what the show needs to do is to grab the interest and attention of people who are more casual fans. Maybe they haven't read the books or that they're not that interested and The Stranger is a great way of doing that. Uh, I was talking to a friend about Rings of Power and he said, yeah, I'll probably watch it, but it is just a prequel. And I was like, I know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think he's read the books. I don't think he's certainly not read The Silmarillion, um, but he knows Lord of the Rings. And, you know, I think that's the danger is that this becomes like a prequel where you just, you know, obviously, you know, the rings are going to come in. We forget that not everyone cares about this stuff as much as we do. Uh, and... 
you, you know, it, it, it should be clear and it should bring in new audiences. And that's an exciting thing for fans of the text and fans of Tolkien. But is he evil um, or, is, or, are we, or are we just not sure whether he's good or evil? I mean, this is this is a very kind of Merlin thing to go to the King Arthur stories. Merlin, who is really kind of the model for Gandalf in many ways, is said to be the devil's son. He's he's uh, quite often depicted as difficult to to know whether you can trust him. Uh, kind of an anti-hero sometimes. You know, he he plays tricks. He's he's uh, shape shifts. Um, you're not quite sure what side he's on. He's a bit of a, a kind of a, a wild pagan figure in amongst all this Christian imagery. And I think that Tolkien loved that and was drawing on that. And I think that was lost slightly in the Ian McKellen version. As much as I love Ian McKellen and his depiction of Gandalf, you always lose something whenever you adapt anything, whenever you translate something from one medium to another. It's always um, a compromise. And you gain some things and you lose some things. And that's the beauty of multiple adaptations. But one thing I thought that the BBC audio dramas did very well is kind of retain that sense of Gandalf as a bit dangerous. You don't quite know what he's going to do. Uh, and I think we've got that back with The Stranger. If it is a wizard, if it is Gandalf, who knows? But even if it isn't, it's fun to sort of get back to that sense of the the kind of the uh, the sorcerer, the, the mystery wild man who maybe good, maybe bad, we're not quite sure yet. And that's a very kind of medieval Arthurian idea that Tolkien was drawing on, but we haven't seen in a wizard for quite some time. When it comes to who is he, there are multiple options here. Um, he could be Gandalf, yes. He could be an alternative wizard. It's been suggested he could be one of the blue wizards. Okay, fine. Um, he could be Sauron. I'm not really putting my money on that one. Uh, a very interesting uh, opinion I've heard is that he is a Balrog. <laughs> but what I think is, yeah, what I think is really interesting is that every guess so far that I've heard is some form of Maiar. One way or another, we think he's a Maiar. Who do you hope it is? Like, what do you, what is your hope for the stranger? Okay, so the obvious one is Gandalf. The more interesting one is Balrog. Because if it's a Balrog, First of all, this is um, this is a Maiar that we know of in a certain shape, although why we keep seeing it depicted in a rather monstrous shape isn't quite clear because they don't have that much description in Tolkien's work. Um, is this a Maiar that can still change its shape as the Maiar could? But of course, this is a Valarauka. That's the full name for the, the Balrogs. Uh, and their shape was fixed in the first age along with Morgoth um, because of their evil, they, then uh, th that came with the inability to change. But Nori says, and this I think is a very important line, I think I was meant to help him. Now, where have we heard language like that before? We go back to the start of the Lord of the Rings and Gandalf says to Frodo, Bilbo was meant to find the ring. He was meant to give it to Frodo. And that is a comforting thought. You're not telling me that language isn't deliberate. Wow. Right, exactly. So there you are. You're getting a whole lot of thoughts out of me straight away. We then get to visit the realm of the Elven Smiths. I'll uh, take the easy way instead <laughs> of saying the hard names. Uh, and we get to see Feanor's hammer, Elrond has respect for it, won't touch it. And Celebrimbor uh, is kind of just kind of sitting back there like, eh, whatever, you know? I, I did not notice, and until y'all brought that up, I did not notice him him not touching that, kind of his his awe and just reverence for for the hammer. So Elrond is being respectful, and then uh, Celebrimbor uh, just, just starts talking, and he's like, uh, he says, they say that Morgoth found the Cimmerils so beautiful that after he had stolen them for weeks, he could do nothing but stare into their depths. He's giving the speech, and he just walks over and just nonchalantly grabs the hammer. Kind of, I was kind of taken aback by it because he's just kind of like 
that the reverence that Elrond had, and then Celebrimbor just kind of picks it up, and he's like, ah, it's just a tool or whatever, and he's kind of wiping it, like, oh, there's smudge there. The juxtaposition, like immediate juxta- juxtaposition. Uh, I, I kind of see some greed in that. It's Feanorian greed, isn't it? It's it's not the greed for riches. It's the greed for power in the making. Um, so, I mean, obviously, Celebrimbor very closely related to Feanor. Um, so he, you can see the way they're portraying him as feeling like he's got a bit of imposter syndrome next mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, Uncle Feanor. Uh, he's a He's a little bit, what have I done? I need to do something. Um, and clearly this is a man with a great passion for the making, but also a passion for power. Mm-hmm. Now, again, nothing is evil in its beginning. When Cale- uh, Celebrimbor starts creating the rings, it is not because he's creating things that are going to enslave somehow the peoples of Middle Earth. He's creating something in which um, you know, the essence of power can be captured and therefore focused. Um, so think of it a bit like, I mean, I hate putting the equal signs and, and making allegory out of it, but think of it like the, uh, the atomic bomb in the Second World War. When Oppenheimer created um, the splitting of the atom, he wasn't thinking, let's obliterate, you know, a heck of a lot of people. He was thinking, wow, this is an incredible thing to be able to do. Keller Brimbor is creating these, these rings because he is seduced by Anatar into pouring uh, his abilities as a great craftsman into these rings. But I am interested into why he has to have this built by spring when he's an elf and he's got literally all the time in the world. Right. That's probably the TV show format that has to drive something. And then he goes into, he's never done anything. He's mm-hmm. never accomplished anything. Yeah, we start to see what most of us know is coming with Celebrimbor. Him kind of laying the character groundwork of his motivations for what he, what we probably, we, most of us know he's going to eventually do. He's got plans, right? He's got them drawn up and he says, we're going to build a forge. He says, the things we could use it to create would transform Middle Earth. They sure might. So then they talk about needing a workforce and the politician Elrond says, I, I know some people. So they venture down to Kazadum. What were your initial thoughts like going into to Casa Doom? Well, first of all, I could see the resonances with the Peter Jackson film because the characters arrive at a door and one of them says about how they're going to get this magnificent welcome with all the salted pork and the malt beer and all that sort of thing. And it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't happen for a different reason for uh, Gimli in, in The Fellowship of the Ring, obviously, in the film. But still... It doesn't happen, which I thought was kind of nice. And then when he actually, when Elrond enters Khazad-dûm, one of the first things you see is the bridge of Khazad-dûm. It's right there. It looks exactly the same, except slightly less dilapidated and slightly less dangerous than it does in the Fellowship of the Ring. So you can see all of those little things that are being gently pointed to uh, that help us to root ourselves in a similar kind of vision of Middle Earth that Peter Jackson has. I think it looked beautiful, and, and not just to see it, but also to see it filled with dwarfs and activity. And uh, I love the way they introduce that with um, uh, Elrond, you know, tr- struggling to get in access and... Um, uh, what's his name, Celebrimbor, not being able to to gain access. So he sort of feels like quite privileged to, to be in there, as it should. Uh, I remember my mum's face lighting up when she saw that because, you know, it's Casa Doom. I mean, it's such a... It's like time traveling back to Babylon or something like that. It has this great potency, uh, you know, for people who... who um, fell in love with the the books and the texts. Uh, it, it's exciting to see Casa Doom in its glory, um, having known it as Moria in Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think they did a brilliant job of realizing that. I'd like to see more of it in future episodes as well. What about uh, when they got into the argument and you know Durin was like, "It's been twenty years," and 
Elrond's like, it's just been 20 years. Now, this, of course, is all about the problem of time. And the elves, because they are, it's not immortality, it's serial longevity. Okay, but if I say immortality, then that's kind of a shortcut to the idea. Um, Their perception of time is so immeasurably different to a perception of time coming from a mortal being. Uh, Now, the dwarves live longer than the humans, that's a given, but they still have a finite lifespan. Um, Unlike, really, the way in which the elves are portrayed, they do have a finite lifespan, but it's like the the end of the world. That's a very different kind of finiteness to what the, uh, the dwarves and the humans have. So it comes down to the problem of time. For Elrond, 20 years is like yesterday to us. Uh, And you get that sense as well when he says, has it only been 20 years? Because it's just a blink of time to an elf who I can't pinpoint exactly how old Elrond is here because we don't really know where in the second age we're being put. But anyway, he's still, you know, many, many hundreds of years old at this point. Um, Whereas for Durin, as you say, he's lived a chunk of life in that time. He's got married. He's had children. These are really major life events. And his friend has missed them all. Now, okay, I've got questions like, why can't you send a messenger saying, would you like to come to my wedding? But still, you know, that the whole point of that conversation, I think, is to give us that sense of the elves and their perception of time. Dwarves are so sensitive. (laughs) This is not the first time we're getting um, this idea of the issue of time, that for the elves, it's hundreds of years is still not that much time. Think about um, when Galadriel says that, you know, we, we hunted for Sauron for hundreds of years. As if that was just, oh, you know, we, we were spending a week up in the north at Forodwaith looking for him. Hundreds of years. So I think what the showrunners are trying to do is give us that sense of a disconnect between the elves and the other peoples in Middle-earth in the sense that the elves are always going to be different with a capital D because of time. Do you think, so I got to thinking, like, is the Balrog down there somewhere and they just haven't gotten, obviously they haven't gotten to, but is the Balrog down there now? Yeah, well, apparently so. Again, you know, I'm not the expert on law, but apparently so. Um, It's just buried very deep. Um, So they're going to get to him. It's almost like a metaphor for fracking or something like that. Right. Um, Going too far. far, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've got to be careful when you're drilling in. Uh, You might, you you never know what you might disturb. Um, So, yeah, I I think the Balrog is there. I mean, we have seen the Balrog teased. And interestingly, at the end of... The credits, you see the New Line logo. Uh, this was news to me when I saw that. I was quite surprised because I didn't think New Line had anything to do with this series. But um, clearly they have something to do with the series. And there is speculation that because the Rings of Power wanted to reuse the Balrog design, they might have licensed that design out from New Line. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's how licensing and imagery works. But there's not, you know... A, wealth of description from talking about Balrogs. I mean, there's quite a lot of confusion about whether Balrogs have ring, wings or not. So uh, it may be that they need to take a specific interpretation of Balrogs from New Line and then reproduce that so that people knew who, who it was. I was kind of disappointed to to see women dwarves and them not have beards because I was kind of looking forward to that. You know what? So was I. Uh, because I would have loved to have seen that being portrayed. I think actually that would have been awesome. But here's the thing. Tolkien loved to change his mind about stuff. And um, we know he changed his mind about things like big things like the origins of orcs, for example. But one of the things he changed his mind about on more than one occasion was whether dwarf women had beards. But I would have loved to have seen Deeso <laughs> with a decent beard, I must admit. And then Theo. Oh, Theo. Okay. Um, now clearly there's something going on there. First of all, his father has disappeared. I'm just going to point in the direction of Halbrand. I'm wondering if Halbrand is actually Theo's father because the father has disappeared and we don't know when and we don't know why and we don't know how. But Halbrand has left something behind in the Southlands 
um, that he doesn't want to talk about. So I'm wondering there. But that sword, that sword is obviously very important. Now, why does this older person who, is that Theo's grandfather or something like that? I'm not 100% sure. Why has he got that hidden under the floorboards in the barn? Okay. Clearly, this is something to do with the Southrons when they were actually in league with Morgoth many generations ago. They didn't throw away this sword. And what gets the sword going, of course, is Theo's blood. And then we right. see it forming, um, which is interesting. That last thing that Theo says as well, uh, when Bronwyn says, are you ready? And he just looks straight and says, yes, I'm ready. And we think, ooh, one of the things that I... Um, I know is that we're going to get the story of all 20 rings of power okay so at some point they've got to set up who these rings of power are going to go to we need the origin stories of these people is this Kamul in his youth who knows but it's really interesting right really interesting because nothing is evil in its beginning I think we're going to come back wow. to that Quite often. There are some people, and I'm going to talk with one next week, uh, a colleague of yours, Ethan, who is not as excited as you are um, about the show. What are your thoughts on people's opinions on this? This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. I have no problem with people who are critical of the show having watched it. People who are actually watching it and have critical things to say about it. That's absolutely fine. Nobody is required to watch it and to enjoy it. Absolutely not. I have got critical things to say about it myself. They're seeing it and they're saying, okay, this isn't for me. And this is why. I would never have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is people who have condemned it before seeing it. Um, I mean, if you don't want to watch it at all, Again, I have no problem. There's there's nothing to say you have to. Please feel free not to watch it at all. But the levels of vitriol against it before it even aired, I found mm. that strange. Um, because before you actually know what they're going to show, how do you know that it's going to be terrible and it's going to be dreadful? 